Greetings, everyone, and welcome to our weekly podcast on legal issues in the post-COVID world. My name is Gil Porter, a partner at Haynes & Boone and chair of our COVID-19 task force. We are continuing this week on our labor employment issues about the challenges and solutions, hopefully, on how we go about reopening for business in this new environment. Nathan Koppel, our Director of Media Relations, will continue his role as moderator, and he will introduce the topics and our speakers. But first, our usual disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, does not establish an attorney-client relationship. By its nature, the topics we discuss are fast-moving and subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. Nathan, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Gil. I appreciate it. Today is May the 7th, and I think we're seven or eight weeks into our remote work environment. But as you mentioned, many companies are getting ready to resume full operations and bring employees back into the workplace. Today, we've got some returning guests to talk about some issues that employers need to think about. First off, Jason Habinski. He's a New York partner and chair of our labor and employment practice group and is joined today by Tamara Devitt, an Orange County partner who's also in our labor and employment practice group. Today in particular, we're going to focus on some workplace liability risks that employers face as they resume operations. I'm going to start with you, Jason, and I hate to start on a grim note, but let's assume as workers, once they return to the workplace, are exposed to COVID-19 and later pass away, could that possibly give rise to wrongful death suits against employers? Thanks, Nathan. And yes, the extraordinary circumstances that everyone's been undergoing really have brought out grim and tragic and horrible results. And unfortunately, also a byproduct of that is the increase in litigation and the increase in the possibility of the family of the employee, him or herself, if they become ill, or even worse, case brought by a family member if an employee does pass away. It does become a much greater risk. And the important thing that employers have to keep in mind is Forgetting about the goal of trying to avoid litigation, of course, the primary goal is to keep your workplace safe and healthy and taking those protocols and taking those steps and following guidance and the directives of the various governmental agencies. And when you're doing that, you're also, of course, protecting yourself from any potential litigation. So, of course, first and foremost, the goal is to protect the workplace But if you are taking steps in compliance with the law and best practices, you're also protecting yourself, the employer, from any potential litigation. And now just very briefly, the framework for litigation, it's generally covered by the workers' compensation framework for injuries in the workplace and deaths in the workplace. But however, you are still going to see family members or plaintiffs' attorneys asserting claims for wrongful death or personal injury. And in order for such a case to be successful, they would have to prove that the employer was highly negligent or even willful or reckless in not following appropriate safety protocols. So the threshold would really have to be very high in order to successfully win a case for personal injury or wrongful death. To make it even more difficult, it is a hard burden to satisfy to actually show that someone became sick because they're in the workplace. In other words, someone could get sick because of where they live, who they associate with on the way to work. 
So it, it is difficult to demonstrate that someone became sick at the workplace. But with that said, of course, the primary goal for the employer is to just take all steps to protect the employees, coworkers, and the workplace. Could employers further insulate themselves by asking employees to sign a release or waiver as a condition for returning to the workplace? That's a good question. And I think the answer is, the short answer is, it can't hurt. But does that mean that if challenged, whether a release signed by an employee who's entering the workplace would be enforceable, would be deemed enforceable by a court? That's very questionable. And the reason for that is there's not necessarily consideration that an employee is receiving for getting that release. In other words, an employee is not receiving compensation or consideration for signing that release. It's very hard to say, well, we're going to have you sign the release and your consideration is going to be, hey, you get to work or you get to come back to work. So there is a very good chance a court would say, hey, that's not enforceable. That's not a mutual agreement between two parties. You, maybe you can get strategic or creative and tie the release to something else, like some sort of promotion or some additional right that the employee is getting. And then you're in exchange for that getting the release. But I would say if challenged, it's probably a long shot as to whether that would be enforceable. It's certainly disincentive and it certainly can't hurt. A stronger case would be if an employer is in the services industry and the employer requires clients or customers to sign a release of liability, then you have a better chance to enforce that, particularly against negligence claims. It's actually really interesting that given the novel nature of this pandemic and this virus, there is no case law or precedent as to whether or not a court would even enforce a waiver and release signed by a customer or a client who's receiving services. I would say that there's a good chance a court would deem that to be enforceable. But I think the gray area is whether a court would consider the release to be against public policy, which is one of the ways that a release could be deemed unenforceable. In other words, asking someone to waive their protections, and uh, particularly with respect to the coronavirus, it's still questionable as to whether or not a court would enforce that, even in the client context. And thanks for that, Jason. And Tamara, uh, first off, welcome back to the podcast. I'm going to ask you about issues that are outside of the office environment and particularly responsibilities that are typically entrusted to a landlord or, or other third parties. I'm thinking about what if an employee were to raise a claim or a family of an employee that the COVID-19 exposure was related to some sort of conduct in the parking garage or in the lobby of a building or maybe even in an elevator. Could employers face liability for claims related to issues that arise there? Thanks, Nathan. Nice to be back. So employers have a duty, of course, to make sure that the workplace is safe. And we generally think about the workplace as in an office setting, you know, the suite or the floor or the building that houses people. And so your question looks at areas that are not traditionally considered part of the workplace, but where employees certainly have to go to get to the workplace like the elevators you mentioned, or the parking garage. So employers are generally not responsible for areas that are beyond their control. But when you have that kind of relationship where it's an office building and they have to get in the elevator to get to it, or the parking garage, you know, that may be considered an extension of the workplace. And under OSHA's general duty clause, which 
we've all been talking a lot about and hearing a lot about, employers have a duty to make sure the workplace is safe. And to some extent, that will extend to these areas that are considered extensions of the workplace. But it's not quite the same duty that an employer would have within the four walls of the office or the suite. And that duty as to these external areas is likely a duty to inquire and inform. And what I mean by that is an employer has a duty to ask the landlord what they are doing to make sure there is compliance with the applicable guidance from the CDC and OSHA and maybe other local agencies that says, you know, we have to do X, Y, Z to keep these areas safe. And then once the employers inquired about that, should be letting employees know so that employees know what the landlord will or will not do so they can know what to expect and how to take appropriate precautions. I think we can expect to see requests for accommodation for as we get back to the workplace where employees are you know, nervous about their own health condition and they don't want to go in the elevator with 20 people or they don't want to be subject to exposure in, in a parking garage or other common areas. And I think employers will need to be prepared to respond to those requests and doing so need to have a really good understanding of what the landlord is going to be doing. There's a lot of discussion now between landlords and their tenants about who's responsible for what and who's going to pay for what. I think it's really most critical for the employer to know what safeguards the landlord has in place and to ensure that's set forth in a way that's most protective of the employees. And I guess, as you said, Tamara, be sure those protocols are communicated to employees and that there's full transparency there. That's right. The whole point is to make sure employees know what they're getting into when it concerns areas over which the employer doesn't have complete control. Thanks for that. Jason, I'm going to head back into the traditional four corners of of the office and ask you about the workplace kitchen, which, of course, traditionally is really the key gathering place in an office. And I'm sure employers really are going to want to do what they can to try to restrict or control access to kitchens. And I'm wondering, could employers face liability if they don't allow employees to use the office kitchen or the office refrigerator? Well, it it really does provide a dilemma as to how to handle an employee's right in most states to be able to take a lunch break and eat lunch either inside or outside of the office because you are combining some potential risks, including, as you mentioned, the cafeteria or the lunchroom is generally the place where employees look forward to gather and congregate. So at least in the near term, as employees return into the workplace, it would be advisable for employers to try to limit employees gathering in a common place like a lunchroom or a cafeteria. And adding to that mix, eating food and drinking beverages, obviously that poses an additional risk. So with that said, an employer does have to provide an opportunity for an employee to eat. You do, as a matter of law, need to provide that lunch break and you need to give them a way to be able to eat their lunch. 
So there are various options. One, of course, is to cater a lunch, and then you could have employees maybe not eat in the cafeteria, but eat in their office or space out appropriately so they're not essentially right on top of each other eating. As you have others catering and bringing in the food, kind of piggybacking on what Tamara said, you're one further step removed from that duty of care when someone else is controlling the food. So you're not cooking it in the firm or in the cafeteria. Instead, you're having a third party prepare that food and hopefully prepare that food safely. So you do remove yourself at least a step from liability, but you still do have to worry about employees, again, congregating close together, leaving leftovers in a refrigerator. And you do, of course, want to make sure that you're providing them that right to have lunch. The other option is to allow them to leave the premises, depending on what city or state you're in and eat somewhere else. But again, even with that, there are risks. Someone is leaving the workplace and then going someone else. Maybe they're going to a crowded restaurant or a fast food restaurant where there are more people. So unfortunately, every option does have its risks. And this is something that an employer is just going to kind of have to wait and see how it all plays out and what appears to be the safest method. Speaking of trips outside the workplace to a crowded restaurant, Tamara, I want to ask you what employers' duty is for conduct that is completely outside of the workplace. I mean, I'm sure employers can only do so much to police employees' conduct during their free time, but do employers have some duty of responsibility to make sure that employees are following all necessary precautions during free time? Yeah, so that's a really good question, Nathan. And it's now in a new and novel context, of course, because as a general rule, employers have a duty to police conduct in the workplace, but aren't responsible to police conduct outside of the workplace. And in fact, a lot of states have restrictions that are imposed upon employers who do try to place restrictions on what an employee does outside of work. So these are referred to generally as off-duty conduct laws, and they say employers can't prohibit lawful off-duty conduct that doesn't happen in the workplace. I think in this setting, as we go forward, employers are really going to want to place restrictions on employees to from going to a restaurant or going to the beach or doing things that are otherwise now prohibited by stay-at-home, even relaxed stay-at-home orders. And what employers can and can't do really is limited by these off-duty conduct laws and restrictions. Of course, they can provide guidance. They can encourage employees to be limiting as much as possible their exposure to any risks of obtaining the virus and sharing it with others, but they can't really take action against an employee who does something lawful outside of work just because it might increase the exposure of something happening and exposure to the virus of somebody at work. And Tamara, given all these risks that we've talked about, does it make sense possibly for employers to think about implementing mandatory arbitration to resolve any disputes or claims that arise? That's one thing I think employers have to think about. So as a general matter, there are pros and cons to implementing mandatory arbitration program for employees where they would agree to pursue any type of lawsuit against 
the company not in a court of law or in a jury trial, but instead in a binding arbitration proceeding with a privately selected arbitrator. There's a lot of rules and regulations around those types of agreements. Generally, it's covered by the Federal Arbitration Act, but there are some state laws. California is one that has a huge body of case law and its own special statute that would apply. So there are really a lot of considerations for an employer to think about before implementing mandatory arbitration. Another thing that some employers are considering even now is if they're sued on a class action basis, do they want to enforce their mandatory arbitration agreement, which includes a class action waiver? And the consideration there is they might waive their right to pursue arbitration or to compel an employee to comply with its employment arbitration agreement if they don't enforce it. On the other hand, it can be very expensive for an employer to deal with a lot of individual claims in arbitration because in, in most states, the employer is the one responsible to pay for that. So I think we'll see some interesting things come out of that going forward. But at the end of the day, whether it makes sense for a company or an employer to implement an arbitration program at this point, I think really, really requires some careful thought and analysis and some input from legal counsel. Thanks, Tamara. Jason, I think I'll end it with a, just a catch-all question for you. Are there any other steps that you think employers should think about to take to possibly protect against lawsuits? Yes, employers really should make sure that they are employing best practices to make sure that if they do need to explain or clarify or defend themselves against any potential claim, litigation, or complaints, that they want to be able to demonstrate very clearly that they have been taking the various steps we've been talking about, whether there are safety protocols, whether it's accommodating a disability, whether it's providing someone additional leave under a federal or state law. And the way you do that is making sure you document that in an appropriate way. You don't want to have to pull out of thin air an explanation, well, we accommodated that employee. You want to be able to show in writing that you had a collaborative, interactive conversation with that employee and be able to show unequivocally that you took the various steps to protect the workplace or protect the employees. So documentation of all of the things we've been talking about is critical and key. In addition to that, you want to make sure that you are training and educating managers, human resources professionals. So all of these protocols and important points and legal guidelines are being complied with. Someone needs to run the show. It shouldn't be who's going to apply these important concepts. There should be a plan in place and a decision tree in place so that everybody knows who is making sure that these protocols and measures are being taken. And finally, you want to make sure that you're educating your employees as well. You want to make sure that they understand that there are protocols in place, that there are safety procedures, that all of these steps were being taken by the employer. So in addition to the managers and the human resources professionals, you want to make sure that all of your employees know what their obligations are, know what the framework is, know what the protocols are, and know who they can speak to and ask questions to and even complain to if necessary. So you want to make sure this whole framework is in place. And that's something to start thinking about now, even if the workplace isn't being opened up tomorrow. You know, th these are important conversations between decision makers at the company. So 
that once those doors do open to your workplace, everyone is ready to go. Well, Jason, Tamara, thanks again for helping us sort through these issues. This is, I believe, our third podcast on workplace issues that employers need to think about as they resume operations. And I believe we've also done several webcasts on the topic. I just would like to refer our listeners to Haynes and Boone's COVID-19 page on our website at HaynesBoone.com, where there's a lot of information about these topics. Thanks, Gil. Over to you. Jason, Tamara, Nathan, thank you all very much. This is a continuing process for us to be going through the challenges of coming back to work. I know for some of us, Jason and I are here in New York, we are probably looking at a slightly longer haul than most of the country before we can really resume back to work in this community. But we've got other people here. I know, Nathan, you're in Texas, Tamara, you're in California, and each of you are working on different cycles. And this is really coming up fast for a lot of us in this country. So I'm glad that we've been able to devote some time to this. We're going to be doing one more webinar on this topic next Tuesday, so please keep an eye on our website for it, where we hope to involve some industry representatives as well who can give us insights on how they're approaching it. And we'll probably finish it off with a final podcast on this topic before moving on to some other challenges next week. So please keep an eye on what we're doing. Again, everything's available if you come to our website, haynesboon.com, H-A-Y-N-E-S-B-O-O-N-E.com. Please also, as I always recommend, reach out to Nathan or to me if you have suggestions on topics for our future podcasts. Our podcasts are available on most popular podcast platforms. If we missed one, let us know. And that's it, everybody. Take care and stay safe. Stay safe.